India valuations have been pretty persistent over time, call it 20 price earnings, pretty static sort of mid-teens return on equity, which would drive that going forward. The risk is the global blow-up stuff, obviously, the potential political disruption, the bit of friction between India and China, that obviously sort of stands out. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Opto Sessions. Today, I have the great pleasure of introducing Angus Shillington, Deputy Portfolio Manager for the Emerging Market Equity Strategy at Vanek. Prior to Vanek, Angus also headed up international equity for ABN AMRO. How are you doing today, Angus? I'm great, Ed. Thanks, uh, thanks for having us on. And uh, you've been traveling recently. Is that right? Where, where have you been to? You've been, is this for work or pleasure? Most most recently uh, on vacation, <laughs> which was much needed. But uh, before that, my most recent trip was actually India. Oh wow! And we should try try and check in there at least a couple of times a year. Okay, okay, because you get on the ground floor to really get the true insights of what's happening there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a yes is is the obvious answer. Um, we care a lot about relationships and and uh, network there, so. Sort of freshening that up post-COVID has been important. I travel pretty extensively, mostly in Asia. I do bounce around a little in, in Brazil, Mexico, but uh, you know, Asia really takes the most of my time. And then within that, India, you know, because of what's happening there right now, uh, you know, I think it's really useful to get there regularly. I think a lot of a lot of what's happening to some extent. I mean, we, we're big believers in sort of pattern matching. Um, we've seen a lot of it before, you know, either in the US or Europe. Um, but it always, whatever it is, whether it's a business perspective or, you know, or a policy perspective tends to roll out very differently on the ground. So, you know, a lot of that is about, you know, understanding as things are changing quickly, um, how, how they are being perceived or how they're being invested around. So, you know, India, as I say, a lot going on, so, uh, requires, a lot of attention. Yeah, of course. Anyway, as you said, so yeah, today we're here to talk about uh, the growth story in India and emerging markets a little bit more generally as well. Particularly interesting time to, to discuss India, given that uh, back in April, I believe, India surpassed China as the world's most populous nation. Um, we know that population growth is a, a key input to economic growth. So I thought we could start by just discussing demographic trends in India and how they're sort of influencing its position in the in the global economy. Sure. Um, I mean, I think the headlines everyone sort of understands. Um, it's a great place to start. Uh, you know, over 1.4 billion people. I mean, median age is is the big story. The median age is 28. Uh, 25% of the population is aged under 14 years old. And I think the first interesting point I'd make around that is that, that the sort of expanding younger voter base strongly favors a growth agenda. So I think one of the big risks that's always thrown out there is that, you know, perhaps there's resistance to change and, and you know, Modi gets thrown out. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. I don't know. But I think the this demographic will drive a growth agenda, what, whatever happens. And then I think, you know, how you broadly think about it, it's not, I don't know, it's not dissimilar to the sort of baby boomer demographic in the U.S. Um, it, 
probably more powerful. Certainly when you sort of break down sort of income levels, you know, India on average is I think one sixth of China, like a tiny fraction of the US. So all of that stuff, that sort of younger demographic driving into, you know, more easier to bring in a mass adoption of technology, internet, that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think it all sort of pushes in a really kind of exciting wave. So I, I mean, I think people tend to throw up this sort of big number, but I think if you get under the number and, and, and in terms of what that younger demographic drives, it's, it's super exciting. When you look at this pattern recognition, like you sort of um, touched upon, if you're looking back at other economies that have, have now sort of developed, like the US and, and things like this, and you talk about the baby boomers, where are we in India's growth story today, if you're relating it back to other economies that are sort of more advanced now? If we discuss the last 20 years, where, where has it come from and where are we at today? And you know, what does the future sort of hold? What, what point are we in? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I'm going to answer you a pretty straightforward question with a not so straightforward answer, but I'll, I'll try and sort of lay it out logically. Um, where India is right now is it's a kind of crazy intersection of the demographic story, which is super powerful, and and I think the analog, as I said, is 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 pretty similar with with the sort of baby boomers in the US. But what's running alongside of that is is digitization, which I think we'll go on to talk about, but also this this really kind of unstoppable flywheel that that is uh, the reform agenda. So the bit that I maybe will start and then I'll throw it back to you is, is oh, I first sat up and took notice about 10 years ago when I met, um, it was the ex-founder, one of the ex-founders of Infosys who went on to do a give back project called Adahar, which was, he wanted to digitize ID, right? So people, nobody knew who anybody was in India. There was very little sort of in the way of paperwork and you know, paperwork sort of disappeared. Um, and he felt that, you know, the catalyst to really attacking the the inflation problem was was digital id so he began a program called adahar which was sort of very basic sort of thumbprint retina scan id um and that went on you know most indians now have that and that catalyzed always the platform for for a lot of modi's policies to be built on top of so i think that's sort of maybe the starting point and so what policies are we talking about that have really you think are really impactful to the economy we think about policy as a cruel right that 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 you know good policy builds on good policy uh you know the kind of stuff that doesn't work is just sort of reactive stop this don't do it again kind of stuff this is not what was going on here this was uh the first thing that that modi really addressed and it was in his his first policy agenda was was reduce corruption and that really involved extracting cash out of the cash economy so you know when he came in it was a sort of somewhat broken economy that was very corrupt that corruption drove a pretty negative election cycle so you know if you're a corrupt politician and you gather a ton of cash and you want to win the next election you distribute that cash so his idea was like take that away um so he took basically the digital id uh, platform. He then introduced this first policy called Jandan, which was everybody must have a bank account, right? So, uh, I think there was a small incentive to open a bank account, but the idea was that once you had your digital ID, you walk into a bank, you KYSA yourself either with your thumbprint or retina scan, and you have a bank account. Now, once you have a bank account, you know government transactions can be done without passing cash through various people's hands. Uh, but the next policy then sort of really sort of catalyzed, or the next two policies really catalyzed the big change. The first one was um, demonetization. I was there when this happened. It was insanity. Uh, he basically, government announced, we're taking all small bills out of the economy. Large bills were allowed for a little while. And there was a deadline of, I think it was two weeks, that if you didn't have your cash in the bank account, that 
he'd already set up. So there's the sequence, digital ID, bank account, cash goes into bank account. It no longer was valid, right? So uh, it was aggressive stance. Uh, so now the cash is in the bank account. The guy who's the corrupt <laughs> politician who's got a bunch of cash under his wow. bed, um, he's screwed, right? He's, he's <laughs> He tries to get that in, the, in a bank account and uh, he's in the clink. So uh, really, you ended up burning a bunch of that um, money that was used for, for, for bad political stuff and, and, and you encourage cash to be put in the bank account. So the next step on top of that was was uh, was tax reform, so it was called goods and services tax. And effectively, you know, kind of funny story. I would check into a hotel before this happened in I don't know, Mumbai. Um, I'd spend one night there. I'd check out the next day, and it would be like you know, five minutes to print the bill because you know it was my one night room, you know, a can of coke, uh, and then you know twenty pages of taxes, which were you know completely uncoordinated, totally impossible to understand, very localized, and so goods and services tax just eradicated all that with one simple platform of an understandable platform, federally scaled, um, so you could start to move stuff across borders. So when you build those three on top of each other, now the cash is in, in the bank accounts, it can start to do sort of real things, uh, has access to credit. Um, you can start to scale businesses in a really interesting way. Everyone knows what tax they're paying. So the, the, the piece that sort of layers on top of this is, is tax revenue, right? So if you know where the cash is and it's, uh, transactions are done largely digitally, you know, tax compliance goes up. It's very difficult to avoid. Um, you know, some Indians aren't that happy about it, but it is a reality. And, and, and you know, conducting business digitally is much more efficient. So the guys who engaged that first, one and showed other you know entrepreneurs ha- how to do it. So, you know, I think the, the the last piece of this, and then you can drill down if if necessary, is if you if you dramatically increase tax compliance, you address the other big problem that India has had up until now, which is transport logistics, awful infrastructure. So, and that's mostly because their budget just couldn't handle it, and the budget couldn't handle it because the budget was underpowered because nobody was paying tax. So you increase tax revs, um, budget goes up. And uh, this is what I talk about. You get this flywheel effect. So you now get plenty of cash now to build new roads, public-private partnerships. Those roads mean better logistics. Better logistics mean lower inflation. And this thing starts to drive itself. For an economy that's um, performed you know, really well on, on uh, local stock market over the last, you know, nifty over the last 20 years or so. Why do you think it's not really had that much visibility out, outside of India? Why have people missed this opportunity and, and not really sort of grabbed it when you could argue that China and their, their growth story early on had a lot, a lot more people in, involved in it? I haven't, had the, I haven't had the why question before. <laughs> it's a great one. Um, I think there were a lot of reasons. One, India sort of existed in this sort of weird parallel universe that, you know, Indian analysts, Indian investment banking heads, you know, center of gravity for, for Asia was in Hong Kong facing China. And that center of gravity faced New York or London, wherever head offices were. And, and, and you know, India just never really got the level of understanding that was required. And, and, and I think, you know, that's somewhat of the message, you know, I'm interested in talking about with anybody who's prepared to listen. So I, I think that that's why um, it was considered, you know, corrupt, volatile, dangerous. But when you, for investing, not for anything else, well, maybe for some other stuff, but I, when you sort of drill down into performance and you I, I, you said it yourself, was like, if you look at the 10-year returns of the, the nifty against, I don't know, the S&P, um, it's about the same. 
right? Somewhere, you know, give or take 10 percentage points of return in US dollars. I'm not giving you sort of Indian rupee to US dollars. I'm saying US dollar to US dollar. Pull that out 20 years, that's 2x, right? So India's given you twice, almost twice the performance of the S&P. And your question is absolutely spot on. Like, why is that? And, and I think it's for some of the reasons I outlined. It's an ID market, meaning that it's a domestic, uh, non-domestic retail investors can't participate directly. Uh, you've got to go through uh, an institution. Um, and then institutionally, generally, you know, people like us, um, asset gatherers, just didn't separate out that part of it until, you know, relatively recently. So I think, you know, all of those together gives you the why question. But I think just to sort of wrap this part, it makes no sense, really, because when you think of what makes up a really powerful index, which generally is, you know, indexes are sort of living things, right? They Bad companies get smaller, great companies get larger. And over time, that sort of living entity is sort of top heavy of the better companies. So, you know, if you look at the S&P, and I'm going back to the S&P because it's sort of one of the sort of most popular, well-known, high-quality indexes. You know, it's made up of a cohort of, of innovative, oligopolistic businesses that operate at scale, great brand value, pricing power great track records. And that's been the same in India, right? So, you know, the performance numbers I laid out 20 and 10 years talk to that. So it's a good question. It it just has been underappreciated. There are great businesses there. They return uh, high numbers to shareholders. um, And that's really compounded over time. So part of the sort of point on the road we are right now is like, how do you express an investment in India or an Indian company with the ID market issue, uh, one. And then then two, I don't think it's like China to the extent that suddenly there's a huge index churn and a bunch of companies turn up and take over the index. It's it's The index itself has got some really great companies that will be persistently great over time. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Looking forward now, we discussed the demographic input uh, factor and also a few of the political reforms that have already passed, but maybe there's some that are going forward now that will help. What, what's driving India, India's economic growth moving forward over the next 10 years outside of what we've already discussed? Right. So, I mean, I, you say outside this thing. You know, high return on equity businesses will persist, um, and there's you know there's a handful of of banks and and conglomerates and you know, guys like Reliance are participating in the future, but it will be driven by you know the effects of digitization. So you know, there's the first derivative of that, which is the great businesses like logistics businesses, like um, the infrastructure businesses. There's there's a big push into renewable energy, which is part of the budget I talked about. But as that feeds into the economy in jobs growth, that feeds into the economy and you know, better logistics will reduce inflation. Um, reduce inflation means you're probably going to get a sort of West reduction in interest rates over time, which means home ownership goes up, you know, access to healthcare goes up. So it's a very sharp modernization, I think, is, is the trend that, that will be the most investable going forward. But it's not just the sort of layer one stuff that sort of seems obvious. It, it penetrates you know, much deeper down um, into the economy. Okay. And obviously, the digital sector, as you mentioned, is one that is particularly interesting in India. What what constitutes digital in India? What sort of sub-themes come underneath that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's sort of reach back into the sort of pattern match we talked about before. It's 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 everything that we have seen. What's slightly different in India is that the government have been very um, proactive in their participation. So, you know, there isn't you know a PayPal per se, which is a sort of privately owned uh, transfer network. It's a it's called UPI. It's 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 publicly owned and it's it's frictionless. Um, transfers. The Indian government has gone hard turn from sort of papery bureaucracy to e-applications for pretty much everything. So I, I think that's sort of the first part of it. But the facilitation piece is, you know, it's the the result of, I think it's going to be a lot of the good outcomes. And the result of, I mean, some of the stuff I spoke to before, lower interest rates equals, you know, homeownership. Digitization means, you know, better connectivity with bank customers, uh, better flow of credit to, you know, the bottom of the social pyramid. So I think all of these things, I, I there's no question that the businesses that are set up of, of pure digital, so whether it's retail or e-commerce, um, you know, direct logistics, they're going to do well. Uh, it's quite difficult to access some of those directly because uh, one sort of EM problem you tend to have is the first mover in, in, in chain tends to be large conglomerates. So, you know, some of this stuff will be buried inside of, you know, reliance, um, stuff like that. So what are the risks or if, do you see any big risks to the Indian economy moving forward that could disrupt this, this sort of growth story that we've outlined? Um, you know, people talk about the valuation risk. I really push back on that. You know, India valuations have been pretty persistent over time. Call it 20 price earnings. Um, you know, pretty static sort of mid-teens return on equity, which should drive that going forward. I think it's more the way, you know, the risk is, you know, the global blow up stuff, obviously, the you know, potential political disruption, you know, geopolitics, uh, there's a bit of friction between India, China, that, that, that obviously sort of stands out. Uh, but other than that, I think the risk probably mostly centers on specific companies um, in India that will be disrupted over time. So there's been this hard belief that mainly in the sort of consumer retail space that certain businesses deserve gigantic multiples for not gigantic growth. And I think as time goes on and, you know, local brands start to disrupt foreign brands, you know, direct consumer business models start to disrupt, you know, heavy, you know, uh, branch or, or, or store distribution networks as your know, multi-line retail starts to disrupt monoline retail. I think things get really interesting and really exciting. I think that's, that's to me, index churn is probably one of the biggest risks going forward outside the, the sort of idiosyncratic stuff. What about the US, US dollar? Do you see that as a problem moving forward or given how the US has sort of managed that over the last sort of two, three years? Sure. You know, we pay attention to this as a risk management tool. So my answer is not going to be directional. My answer is going to be we don't think it's a big issue, partly because there's probably some pressure on the US dollar to weaken, partly because, you know, over time, when you look at the data, uh, India's relative value of its currency has tended to reflect the foreign direct investment flows. So the more people buying into the Indian market, the more stable the currency has been. So there's probably a little weakness because inflation will, maybe there'll be a little weakness. I would say there'll be a tendency that way. Um, but I think stability is 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 pretty a pretty safe bet. And, and I say stability as plus minus sort of 5 or 10%. 
And this growth story of India moving forward, do you think we've seen peak economic growth in India or is this still on the horizon? Like what period are we going through here? I'd say not even close, right? I, but I, I think, I, I don't think I'm, maybe I'm asked, uh, not answering the question that you are asking. So let me just sort of separate that into sort of two specific issues. GDP growth as a you know, relative percentage number, you know, what's the biggest number that will be? We may have seen it. There's been some big numbers in the past. But I think the, the opportunity and the really interesting point here is this is compounding, right? So to me, as a sort of grisly old veteran of, of, of markets, that is probably the most underrated value creator over time. So I don't need to throw out numbers that are exciting in terms of GDP growth. You know, the IMF and the World Bank Bank have done a pretty good job at, you know, five to seven percent through 2020. So no, you compound that and you're in a pretty interesting place. We actually did a pretty pretty wild study recently, which was a sort of um, mashup of some Warren Buffett stuff and and some stuff we've done internally, which was to look at the sort of the average rates of stock market return, how they correlate with GDP growth over time, then lay on top of that, you know, GDP forecasts for the world through 2030. And I came up with a realistic possibility, I'm not saying a probability, a realistic possibility that India ends up as you know, a top three market cap stock market you know, within seven years, it's, it's, these are, you know, these are big numbers. So, you know, if you clip these compound 5% uh, over a relatively long period of time and, and the stock market can convert that, um, at sort of low double digits to returns, um, it's a really very exciting, you know, long-term story. I'm not, this is not sort of, I'm, I'm not sort of throwing out the hundred percent in a year thing. I, I, I it's not, my my thing but you know over time it's it's difficult to see where you're going to get better returns uh in that perspective mm-hmm. is it's been driven largely by foreign investment flows into the economy or not or uh it's a bit of both so there's a, there's a very really robust sort of again i live in the u.s sort of 401k type process called called the sip where you can put rel- local indians can put relatively small amounts in and that's become really a, quite a material uh, driver of, of flows. But but foreigners, I think, as, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of hesitation still around valuations. Um, I think that will probably change over time. But there's also, there will be a, a like a wave of new issuances. I mean, there's, there's some really interesting stuff back in the private markets that uh, will, will show up pretty soon. Uh, so that will drive some flows. So I think generally positive and probably balanced. Yeah. And coming back to the valuation point, are you um, are the valuations high primarily because they're just high growth businesses or relatively high growth businesses, and that's baked into higher um, you know price to earnings, and they're, they're going to grow into those valuations? Is that how you see it? So they're just persistently higher most of the time. Um, I mean, I'm glad you asked that because I, I sort of think that the way the sort of the construct of India is expensive or more expensive, it, it doesn't does a bit of a disservice to either new or existing investors because it just doesn't give the picture. I mean, I think I would tend to look at evaluation in isolation, right, first of all. Secondly, I would sort of deconstruct it or decompose it into what's the price you're paying and, and what the risk you're taking. So, you know, if you sort of look at volatility and, you know, the Indian vol is, is relatively low, not far off the US. And as you say, you're, you're getting a nice growth clip with the quality of businesses that I sort of laid out with in mid-teens ROEs, that deserves a valuation. So 
you know, what's your likely return? What's the risk you're taking? That, you know, if you run that through basic academic models, the valuation of where it is right now isn't unrealistic. And it's been the same valuation for quite a while. Yeah. I thought we could move on to just more generally emerging markets outside of India. If there are any sort of emerging markets that also are quite interesting to you at the moment, you know, globally, um, and why? Uh, I'm going to really annoy you here, but <laughs> you know, we, the strategy I work on, um, all we think about is businesses, right? So in terms where the, where the company piece comes in or where the country piece comes in is really around risk. So will this country blow up or, or you know, is there a, is, is there a big sort of tsunami of, of, of interest rates coming in? So to that extent, we don't have very strong views, but you know, if you look at our portfolio now, it's pretty heavy in Brazil, uh, pretty heavy in Mexico. So the, the two of those clearly have, you know, great structural long-term tailwinds. So Brazil reform, um, some commodity stuff, uh, Mexico, a lot of the sort of nearshoring trend. Um, and then there is a bunch like, you know, Philippines and Indonesia that always have this sort of nice, slow grind, long-term middle-class demographic story. And there's some excellent businesses in both of those. But then when, you know, even when you come to China, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't address that with a binary yes or no question because in any market there are great businesses, right? So I think our job is and, and, and our you know, mission is to uncover those. Um, you know, when you've got as much sort of dislike for China as there is right now, you know, dispersion of 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 multiples is is very low. Um, all stocks tend to trade together, but you know, even within China, there's uh, you know. A handful, a big handful of of what I would call you know, s- structural growth, compounding superheroes that are trading at really low valuations that that, that could pay well over time. So you know, I know I I mean I totally respect your question <laughs> and I've dodged it somewhat, but you know, but it's interesting to know that even going that sort of bomb up point of view, you're, you're seeing pockets in certain areas come up, such as you know Brazil and Mexico and places that yeah they're even talking to today. Um, it was the the automakers in the US that the they've got the unions are demanding some pretty hefty increases in pensions, wages, etc. Which they're you know debating whether or not that's just going to push the trend for changing the manufacturing over to sort of areas such as Mexico where they don't have these problems as much. Comment on that through a sort of India lens, just to switch back to that very quickly. Look, I mean, if you build a business. You know, a long time ago, using technology from a long time ago, uh, with a cost structure from a long time ago, and you're depreciating and amortizing, you know, fixed assets from a long time ago, you have very little room to maneuver and adapt and and, and innovate your balance sheet and 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 you know your cost structure. If you're a, a new business that that's born in the cloud, not born in a factory, born with digital distribution and direct to customer type relationships, you got a good chance of of making a good profit at lower than the other guy's cash cost. So I think what you're seeing in the US, you're sort of seeing everywhere. Um, I think just you know, in EM, because the digitization piece came later and came faster, uh, the disruption could be more violent. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask about uh, de-dollarization. Is that a trend you see persisting? Uh, there's been a lot of chatter recently between the BRICS in particular, uh, removing their reliance to the dollar. I don't know how much they've realistically been able to split away from that, but do you see this something as a big thing moving forward that they're going to sort of steadily, you know, remove their reliance on, on the dollar and price their markets in, in their local currencies more, et cetera? You know, I tend to lean on, you know, Eric Fine and our 
fixed income team here, and and you know that their point is pay attention. Um, I mean, I think when you look at any sort of policy framework that's come out of the BRIC countries in you know, 15, 20 years, it's been kind of zero. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of friction between all those guys, both ideologically and economically. So, uh, but I think you know the dollar was weaponized relatively recently, and and that creates risk for non-U.S. countries holding that asset. So, I think it's it's definitely a risk, and and, and we definitely are paying very very close attention. No, thanks very much for uh, all your wisdom today, Angus. And it's been really interesting discussed India. Uh, and, you know, same with the community. I think um, there'd be a lot of insights there they won't, won't have heard of before. And it's, it's great to get a bit of a better lens on what's happening there. Is there anything else you'd like to leave on? Do you have Twitter? Can people follow some of your commentary online? Or is there, does Vanek have a blog, etc.? I have <laughs> real problems ramping my, uh, my Twitter following. I'm at, I, I, at Angus Schilling Talk with no N. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well so thanks uh thanks for for for, uh for your questions yeah no problem at all thanks angus have a great day appreciate it you too bye